Hey, welcome to the podcast of The Kelly Cutrera Show. It's Tuesday, February the 9th. And according to the latest report from the city's Auditor General, city workers are taking advantage of public funds. They're taking excessive breaks. Some of them go into the mall. Some of them only working a productive three and a half hours out of an eight-hour shift. We'll speak with Stephen Holliday on how we can remedy this. And we'll also give you the heads up on what to expect from the 9th annual Toronto Black Film Festival, which starts tomorrow. But first... We've been working day and night to find every possible way to safely allow more businesses to reopen. And now we're taking decisive action. Under the revised framework, we'll be allowing non-essential retail businesses to reopen with stronger restrictions, including capacity limits, even in the gray lockdown zones. Ryan Malo is the Canadian Federation of Independent Business Director of Provincial Affairs for Ontario. He joins the show now. Ryan, was there a bit of a cheer when uh, Ford announced that yesterday? I would say uh, a cautiously optimistic one. Certainly a good sign that we're in a position where we can start to reopen across the province, and that is good. Um, but there's also an understanding, in particular in, in Toronto, that for some sectors, it's still going to be weeks uh, before we get to a point where we can reopen again. Yeah, and Dr. Davila is saying yesterday that we're moving from one pandemic into a totally new pandemic. It can't actually be news that's well-received to you and, and yours as well. No, and we also note that you know we have seen municipalities clamp down a little harder than the province before. That happened back in November, just before the province shut down Toronto and Peel, Um, So we are watching the city very closely, too, for what they may do and if there are going to be additional restrictions uh, on top of the color-coded framework. Right. And the emergency break can be pulled at any time. But that aside, um, what about yesterday's reopening announcement do you like and what do you have a problem with? So, I mean, we, we like that we're getting back to reopening. It's It's been a long time coming and, you know, there's been a, a lot of frustration amongst uh, small business owners, in particular in those regions with low case incidents. There was a, a big view in particular in northern Ontario that, you know, Toronto and the GTA was kind of dictating pace um, and while their case counts were low and they could have been open. So that's a positive sign. Um, I will say to retailers, uh, especially especially in this city who who lost their entire Christmas season, um, being able to be open in the gray zone, uh, which Toronto is likely to reopen to, um, is extremely important. I mean, it's February. It's not November, December. Uh, it's traditionally a slow month, but getting back to reopening uh, is very encouraging. On and the what dislike, if, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yep, no, go ahead. I was going to say on, on the dislike side in that same area, uh, businesses like gyms, indoor dining for restaurants uh, remain closed in that gray zone and are still they still don't know when they'll be able to reopen. And even when they do, and if we can get back to, say, red, there's still a very tight capacity limit, I think, of uh, 10 people on their side. So I would say that this was a positive first step from the province, but it's very much a first step from the province. What about uh, hair salons? What, what's the situation with, because I know they've revised the framework. So uh, gray, are they allowed to operate with limited capacity? Red, are they allowed to operate with limited capacity? What do you know there? So I will say I'm personally very invested in this, not having had a haircut in about four months. Um, But in the gray zone, personal care services remain closed. In the red zone, they start to open up a bit as long as you don't require removing the mask. So a haircut would be good, but a beard trim would still be out. Yeah, we're still talking about this uh, a little bit later on in the program because there are people that are in the city of Toronto, hair salon owners and stylists, 
that are saying that, you know, this is really pushing the uh, industry underground. And they're actually worried about the health of their industry, not just right now surviving, but later on about, you know, like, are people going to get used to getting their haircut at home? And will those people that have been, you know, uh, skirting the law and giving haircuts in their in, you know, people's houses, uh, you know, with taking their cool their toolkit along and doing it at, at other people's houses, if they're even going to come back and work at salons? Yeah, it's it's a big question mark and certainly a concern that we're hearing. And on top of that, they're also having to deal with the fact that uh, in Toronto, Peel and York, it's going to be some time before they can reopen. Whereas in Halton, they -hmm. will be open. And we saw that during the holiday season where despite the fact that Peel was shut down, we heard from hairdressers in Halton saying my entire client list right now is Mississauga. And unlike, you know, retail or a gym where the return business is pretty frequent, once everybody gets that you know long desired haircut, you're back on your regular schedule. So we are concerned that the Toronto uh, hairdressers in particular are going to miss that initial boom, um, mm-hmm. and which is going to make their recovery that much more difficult. And again, I think drive that underground economy even more as well. Right. And this regional approach, it's problematic because you could be taking a virus variant from a hotspot and spreading it to one that's not. Yeah, and, and we heard Dr. Davila note that that was the issue around Toronto during the holiday season. Despite the lockdown in the city, um, she noted that holiday shopping, uh, in her view, contributed towards the increase. Well, you couldn't really shop in the city. What it meant was people were going outside of the city uh, and coming back. And that is always a concern when it comes to driving the pandemic as well. Can I talk about something, ask you about something else? I know that the Canadian Federation of Independent Business has um, been lobbying the government aggressively with regard to online uh, transaction fees when it comes to credit card um, rates and how much people are being charged. Because people are now going online and shopping more than they ever have during this pandemic online. And it's costing independent businesses more to make less. Uh, can you talk about uh, a little bit about, you know, what you're hoping the government will do? Yeah, we're, we're working very hard on the federal government to come to clamp down on those additional fees that uh, are coming to business owners. I think before the lockdown, uh, small businesses actually weren't the best with e-commerce. There's not a lot of them that were actually online or set up to do the transaction online if they did have a website. We have been seeing some pretty solid growth, and the provincial uh, uh, Main Street program has been good about helping businesses get online. But once you're there, there are a whole bunch of new cost implications that you didn't see before. The credit card fees is a big one. You also have to be able to maintain an inventory. You have to get used to shipping all of a sudden, which small businesses do not have the Amazon-level network when it comes to shipping. Um, And it's often a major cost on that side for them as well. Um, so there are a number of, of barriers that, you know, while it's, it's great businesses are adapting, um, they're finding new, new red tape and new barriers uh, in their way once they get there. And the banks are saying, well, you could always negotiate for lower merchant service fees. But the reality is we saw um, Walmart in 2016 threaten to stop a- accepting Visa Remember that they they just said we're going to stop taking Visa because they said they were spending way too much for their services, about a hundred million a year. And then after about six months, Visa realized they'd be losing a lot of money there, and they just decided, okay, well, you know, we'll make it. Let's make a deal. But when you're a small independent business, you don't have the ability to negotiate like that. That's exactly it. And I mean, we we as an organization with our hundred and ten thousand members try to provide some of that. Uh, same same level of, of power when you combine our membership, the credit card sales are quite strong. Um, we were able to do that with MasterCard and Amex at one point, but 
realistically moving forward, I mean, we do have a credit card code of conduct in this country. It is something that the major companies signed on to. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do need to see those those processing fees come down uh, on the e-commerce side, especially given that in all likelihood it's here to stay. That's a shopping habit that, you know, it might not be at Black Friday levels or Cyber Monday levels for the entire year, but it's certainly going to be something that people continue to do even once we're past the pandemic. Uh, apparently, the, the Grocers Federation says that the fees for online transactions were excluded from Visa and MasterCard's agreements with the federal government when they, they were negotiated uh, in 2018. And I know that Dan Kelly, who's your president, he says it's impossible to know what they were, um, that the undertakings are considered confidential and not available for public scrutiny. Shouldn't they be available? Shouldn't we, you know, who are paying the government, know what are in these agreements as far as credit cards go? I mean, I, I, I think so. I, I think that's the you know, information that, you know, we as consumers and small business owners, I mean, well, small business owners get, but we as consumers need. And when you're looking at it from the, you know, 50,000 foot level that, you know, we need to get an understanding of what that number is broadly, as opposed to coming in as we hear it from frustrated business owners. I think it would be a, a good first step, but it is something that, you know, the government needs to look at. Uh, the Trudeau government campaigned on promising to remove HST from those processing fees. That hasn't happened yet. That's mm. about a $500 million cost annually. Um, so there's there's still a lot of work to do on the credit card side. And again, I think it's crucial, uh, given that credit card spending and online shopping really has picked up. And again, I think it's here to stay. Ryan, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, we'll talk to you again soon, I hope. Thanks for having me. One of the most amazing things about Toronto uh, and the fact that it's a big city is how many uh, trees we have in the city of Toronto. Uh, I remember once I uh, worked uh, north on Young Street, um, north of the 401, and I was up on the uh, top of the. This is back in the days when Q107 was at Norton, Young and Norton. And I was doing a stint working on Q107 for a summer. I was home between BC and Toronto. And I I remember there was a great balcony off of that uh, radio station, and you just looked down Young Street, and it was just amazing how many trees that we have in our city, you know, as far as big cities go, our coverage as far as green space is huge. I mean, we have trees all over neighborhoods and these trees have to be maintained. Uh, Back in 2019, the auditor general of the city pointed out that data from GPS showed a discrepancy when it came to people that worked for the city on the tree canopy between uh, the discrepancy was between work logs and actual time spent elsewhere, like coffee shops and malls. Do you remember that? So it cost the city about $2.6 million per year, and they made some recommendations on how the city could rectify the problem. And then the Auditor General said, I got an idea. Before we do our audit here again to find out how our city of, of Toronto workers are doing as far as the tree canopy is concerned and, uh, and the contracted groups that also take down trees, let's find out what's going on. But let's do it covertly. So um, she hired a videographer, somebody to go out and start uh, taking pictures and filming crews that were supposed to be working between July 31st and September 25th. And um, she herself went out and observed some people working as well. Well, the follow-up was made public yesterday, and it concludes that more than 1.5 years after the original audit, concerns persist. And the city is still not receiving value for money for tree maintenance. And the Toronto Star did this great piece on it. 
where they show, you know, parts of the video, you know, their city of Toronto workers covertly, uh, covertly uh, seen shopping, exercising, taking excessive breaks. One guy's doing push-ups. Come on. This is one of the most crazy parts of the story. Contracted tree workers visited one plaza so often their vehicles were even captured by Google Maps Street View multiple times across many months. Do you know how hard it is to do that? Just try and stand outside your house and see how often you appear on Google Maps. You know, it's it's very hard to time that. So Councillor Stephen Holliday joins the show now. He is the uh, chair of the audit committee. Welcome to the program. Good to have you on. Hey, thanks for having me, Kelly. And really, thank you for talking about this. This is this is really big, and this is very important. Yeah, when you do talk about the green space, our tree, our city is very canopied. We need to take care of it. I mean, for insurance purposes, for the health of the canopy, uh, various reasons. So I understand the need to invest money in that. But after that 2019 audit uh, that showed that the city. Uh, was losing about $2.6 million per year on people not doing their jobs effectively. How did the department in charge seek to remedy the problem? Well, there was a, a few pieces to it. And I uh, thank you for the lead-in. You've done a, a great job talking about the various components of this and, and some of the more galling pieces when you read the report and see the pictures. But that original audit asked them to fix the, the GPS systems and start reconciling the logs and the work logs that the vendors submit to bill for their time. And they said, essentially said, supervise better. Now we find out in this report that not all of that happened. I, I will say, you know, the GPS logs are, are now saying the truck is where it's supposed to be. And that's why the auditor was out. She went out to go do field observations to see, you know, is that truck in the place it's supposed to be? Are all of these billing sequences going through properly? And then she saw what she saw. And, and she has come back now to council uh, with all of this report, and you know, I'm sure I'm furious. I'm sure the other members of council are furious because we were told this was going to be fixed, and now what we have is something that is simple. This is a workplace culture issue. This is beyond the technicals of the GPS system and billing, the traditional things that you hear from an auditor. It's about waste, and it's about people that are wasting mm-hmm. taxpayer money and taxpayer resources and doing this as we're going through COVID, knowing what financial challenges we have in the city. I don't understand how somebody can think that that's okay. So it's time to fix this immediately. Yeah, I suppose this could be looked at, you know, on by some people as theft, not just waste. Yeah, I mean, there is there is the concept of time theft. Uh, you know, it, it comes down to who knew what, when and where. Mm-hmm. But I just want to even look at it as a cultural issue that, you know, you got to work hard, you got to be efficient. And worst of all, you know, these examples, you know, mar all of the good people that work really hard for this municipality and government at large. There's a lot of people have been out there on the front lines going through COVID. And then they see a report like this and it's a slap in the face. And I think I think it's important to talk about, you know, that not everybody is doing it wrong. But in this case, there is there is a group of people here that have been captured on camera in photos, black and white, you know, taking long breaks. Sometimes those breaks aren't written down, going to plazas over and over again. Some of the stuff that the auditor talked about was unsafe work. There's no excuse for that. There's none whatsoever. It has to stop. Yeah, I want to punctuate it with this as well, because I didn't even get to this. Um, They did uh, 500 hours of physical observations. They found that contracted crews on average spent only three and a half hours, less than half of the eight-hour shift, actively working on trees. Now, as you said, 
this is unbelievable during COVID, uh, let alone the fact that there are so many people out of work here. What can the city do about this? Well, I think you'll see council begin to, in a way, micromanage this. We're going to ask a ton of questions about it, and we're going to probably be looking for more and more report backs on frequent intervals to see that the culture is shifting. But we'll be putting a lot of pressure on the city's senior management to make the message clear that it can't continue. But the simplest thing that the auditor told us was, is, is as you've pointed out, less than half the workday is spent actually cutting the tree and, 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 the, and the work associated, right? Setting the truck up, that sort of thing. Now there's legitimate things you do also during the workday. You got to drive to the work site. You got to dump the extra wood. I don't know and, anybody and, you that know, gets you paid to get to the work. Tools. Well, I mean, you know, there is there is there is terms of the contract and, and you're right. We should look at all of those pieces. But but even if you add those pieces in, there's still a chunk of the day that you found on average that you can't account for productive mm-hmm. time that needs to squeeze down. And her observation was, if you can increase the amount of time by 30 minutes that they spend on the tree, so it becomes half the day, that's worth a million dollars worth of productivity. And we're not looking to save the money. It's just cut more trees. That's the outcome we're looking for is to do the work. If I hired a plumber to come in and work at my house to work on my plumbing and they were contracted for an eight hour day and they spent four of it sitting there on their phone or doing something else, I would not be happy and I would have no problem breaking that contract. So about these contracts, are they hard to break? Because we obviously have evidence. Well, there's a few pieces to this. I can yeah. say that the contracts are up for renewal. So I, I know the city uh, management team are looking at how do you build more mechanisms in to make them stronger. You can have the strongest contract in the world. You still have to have people out there watching. And that was the other point that the auditor made is that, you know, there's some evidence there that, you know, if the crews were or the supervisors were going out looking and they were signing off on work saying, oh, it's all good here. When in fact, the, the, the crews hadn't started the work. Or, or they weren't accurate with that. I'm not saying it happened all the time, mm-hmm. but the message she said is you have to be out there checking on these people and those people need to be checked on and you need to be supervising those contractors. And it was not just the contractors that this was happening with. We so also we need have to be babysitting? Crews. Well, you need to have systems in place. Yeah. But what about just expecting that, that we're going to see a value for money? Isn't, is that unreasonable? Well, that's the galling part about this is everybody knows what's right and wrong. Everybody can relate to your plumbing example that, you know, you can't pay your plumber to be sitting around on the phone or, you know, if they go to Home Depot and it takes half an hour to get the part, fine, but they can't spend the day there shopping for you. So, you know, there's clear differences between what's acceptable and what's not. And the expectation of council is on the management that they are on top of all of these contractors and the city in-house crew making sure they're, they're working uh, efficiently and providing value to the taxpayer. Mm-hmm. I know that the city's searching for money. So we also know that they're going to, uh, the city tree, tree maintenance contracts will be up for tender in June, as you mentioned. Couldn't it be as simple as uh, looking for the bad actors that you obviously have evidence on now? And sorry if it was one crew or two crews or whatever, and I, you might have a lot of crews out, but guess who just lost their contracts? And you can then let your lazy workers go and we'll see how you do next time. But we caught you in the act, so take it up with your workers that didn't do their job. Well, that's the point, is you shift all the risk onto those vendors. I mean, the auditor said it. Like, if these crews want to take breaks once every hour, as many as they want, go right ahead. But don't bill the taxpayer for the break time. 
if you're off the if you're off the clock, you're off the clock, and and it's up to your direct supervisor to see if that's reasonable. But you can't double bill. You can't be having a smoke break and then sticking it to the taxpayer during that time. I know that the Auditor General has uh, put out another list of recommendations on how you can make people do their job. Boggling to the mind, really. Um, But one of the things that I thought was really interesting is using uh, even more technology, requesting crews to submit geotag photos of each tree, showing the tree before and after the work has been completed, and then that the urban forestry staff should review those photos when signing off on the day's uh, logs, and then that those geotags go uh, with the, the maintenance records and be submitted by those tree maintenance crews at the end of the day. I, I'm i all for it. I, like if, you, if we have to treat you like babies and you have to show your work, then you have to show your work. Come on. Well, that's exactly it. I mean, uh, I, when I, my kids do their homework assignments, they snap the photo with the iPad and upload it to the teacher and she marks it. I don't know if she reads it carefully, but the photo's there and it's timestamped to show that they did the work. She made that recommendation a year and a half ago, and yet it's still not being done. And that's part of the fury I think the council's seeing on this. You don't need high technology to snap a photo and submit it. You take your cell phone, you snap the photo and you email it, and it's timestamped. Simple stuff that can start today would begin to change the workplace culture and show mm-hmm. that people are accountable for what they're doing out there. Yeah, and the problem with workplace culture is when it starts to slide, and I, I want to make sure that I say, I don't think, you know, I like the geotagging idea because I obviously people that do their job, and you know who you are, if you're working hard and there's some people on the crew that aren't, you're pulling all the weight because you really care about your job and you like your job and you have a great worth e- a work ethic or a normal work ethic, um, you're protected by something like that. You know, it helps ensure that other people are also pulling their weight. If you all have to send in photos of to show your work, then I guess that's good. That's one way to deal with it. But I, uh, I, I think it's about time that we understand that cultures, uh, when you're working in a, in a culture that enables laziness, that it's it, it's actually contagious. Oh, you're so right on that. And I think the clearest message that council has to send is that, you know, we're on to this and we expect the culture change and we want citizens to trust council. We want citizens to trust government and the government itself needs to trust its workers out in the field. Right now, that trust has been broken. The auditor has given us a clear path on how to climb out of that. Uh, and it's my expectation that we're going to follow that path. And, you know, rest assured, members of council are onto this and we're going to be following up, keeping an eye on the progress. And you know what? The concept will will multiply. I'm not saying we got problems in other departments, but people will get the message that, um, you know, the, you can't waste taxpayers' money. There's lots of eyes and lots of cell phones out there. And there's lots of people that reported in the concerns directly to the Auditor General or to the city's management team, independently of the auditor's work. And all that goes together to build a good system. We really have a good auditor at the City of Toronto. She's done a great service for us here. Uh, and, and she has created the path for change. And let's take it. Yeah, well, if it's not taken, then God knows we don't need another audit. Like uh, we saw the results of, you know, the last year and a half ago. And now, I mean, if this happens again, you're going to have a lot of outraged Torontonians on your hands, especially because there's a lot of able-bodied people that work in the service industry that are like, I don't know when my job's coming back. I'd like to do that. Well, what's the old saying, you know, 
fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. I can't imagine a third audit. She put 500 hours into round two of this audit. We need the Auditor General out looking at other stuff, not the same thing over and over again. So uh, there had better not be a third audit. Uh, I, 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 or, you know, it'll be like a volcano erupting around yeah. city council. Not that this one is going to be an easy one either. People are fit to be tied over this. I bet. Stephen Holliday, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Well, here we are. It is February the 9th. It's Black History Month. And the 9th Toronto Black Film Festival starts tomorrow. It's presented by the TD Bank in collaboration with Global News. Uh, 154 films from 25 countries will be part of the festival this year, which, of course, is going virtual. Here to talk about it, Fabian Cola, founder of the Toronto Black Film Festival. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Kelly. Well, obviously, going virtual has some disadvantages, but uh, let's focus on on the silver lining here. What are the advantages? I would imagine a global reach. Global reach and the opportunity for us to reach not only new audiences, um, people that otherwise wouldn't have been able to attend because you have to take a plane to get to Toronto to attend the festival usually, but also um, reach of more artists because usually um, the Toronto Black Film Festival presents um, about 70 films. Um, yearly. So this year it's 154 films. That means more because we don't have to be like, ah, oh, well, we don't have any more, you know, um, room, theater you capacity. know, any more yeah. theaters or any more uh, seats, in, uh, you know, in the schedule. So yeah. now we can put more films. We can welcome more filmmakers and then also a lot more panel discussions and conferences because everybody can do them from Zoom um, from home. Before I get to the panel discussions, let's talk about the mandate of the Toronto Black Film Festival. It's to provide an opportunity for filmmakers from all ethnic backgrounds to shine the spotlight on authentic stories that reflect the realities of, of black experiences. I just read that the Globe, the Golden Globes have been criticized this year for their lack of uh, films focused on people of color. Does this further highlight the importance of the Toronto Black Film Festival this year? Oh, my goodness. Totally, Kelly. I mean, the Toronto Black Film Festival is the necessary festival right here, right now, because we have a lot of talent, you know, black communities in the film industry. But however, black creators and black films and black authentic stories are not getting the, 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 the recognition, nor the spotlight they deserve. So we're very fortunate to be, um, you know, showcasing that many talent, that many filmmakers and that many great, inspiring films. And we've been doing that for nine years years here um and let me please um thank Torontonians because they were the first ones to support the festival before it even went you know global so um it, it's really because Toronto is the city of film that this festival is so popular but yes this is necessary that we keep the pressure on the film industry whether it's in Hollywood or here in Canada that inclusion matters that inclusion is necessary because not because we have one good year at the Golden Globe, that we made it. No. I mean, it, we, we always, always one inch to go backward. That's probably going to be uh, a topic at uh, one or more of the panels that will be hosted during the Toronto Black Film Festival. What else, what other issues will um, filmmakers and artists be focusing on? 
Oh, well, um, besides the great um, lineup of films coming from 25 countries, as you said, um, we're also having um, we're also having panel discussions and conferences with uh, top minds in the industry, mostly black um, creators and entrepreneurs and, you know, um, producers. Um, we're going to talk about the issues that we face in Canadian film industry. This is really important, but also about all the things that matters for the community in general, um, like, you know, um, the Black Lives Matter movement, like um, the BIPOC movement, like the N-word used in cinema and television, like mm. so many other things. And then we have a special, um, that, that's a first, we have a special series called Show Me the Money, because it's a multi-billion dollar industry in Black producers don't get their share um, part, you know, they're part of the pie. So right. we want to make sure that we talk to um, whether it's Telefilm Canada, Canada Media Fund, Ontario Create, and then the Council for the Arts in Canada, Toronto and Ontario, and then, you know, the Bell Fund, and then the Shaw, Shaw Rocket Fund, and all of you guys to understand where the money is and then how do um, creators of color get access to, to this money um, so we can create, you know, high-quality films. Because what we've seen that happens with the success stories in, in Hollywood that, are, you know, films that are produced by, uh, you know, black artists, they usually have to fund a lot of it themselves and just hope that they're going to see, you know, payback when it comes to the, the actual, you know, numbers of seats uh, that are sold. Let's talk about your opening film because I think it looks like it's going to be a good one. It's it, the executive producer is Shaquille O'Neal. Yes, yes, yes. This is uh, one of the strongest film I've seen in years. Um, it's a film about the foster care um, crisis in the United States, but also that resonates home because in Canada we have um, some problems with the foster care system as well. So everybody will relate to that film. It's called Foster Boy. It stars um, Matthew Modine, um, Louis Gossett Jr., and then Sean Paul McGee, but so many great um, actors. And this is one film that you know, made me cry, made me smile, inspired me, gave me hope. So this is really a great, amazing way to open the festival. And then we also have a lot of Canadian films as well. We have comedies, we have documentaries, we have narrative films. Seriously, I know it's a cliche, but there is really something for everybody. Um, and for people to really understand the lineup, you have to go to torontoblackfilm.com and then really dive into these stories. And when people um, purchase their all-access pass or tickets for these films, Kelly, mm -hmm. they don't just get to watch great films. They also get to support an inclusive movement. They get to empower 154 filmmakers and, you know, be inspired by great uplifted, uplifting stories. So it's, it's more than just a festival. It's really a movement. It's really something that makes our society more inclusive. Let me ask you this. With the All Access Pass, I was looking at it, it's $69. It's a massive savings because I think it's, it's worth about 400 bucks. Can you revisit films you've watched before? Um, well, the, the, yes, I mean, all the films are going to be there from the, yeah. the fe February 10th until the 21st. So with the all access pass, you can see all you can, all you can watch. However, if you take an individual ticket, then you have 24 hours to watch that film. Right. But I love the ability to go back and revisit a film because that's one of the things that you don't get to do when you're at a, a film festival that is not virtual, like that you're attending in person, unless you... 
uh, are savvy enough to, there's such a high demand to get in. So this is one of the benefits of going virtual is if I really want to see a film again, I can go back and revisit it. And then, you know, the best thing of all, Kelly, is that usually um, when we are having like a physic, you know, in-person festival, mm-hmm. it would be one pass for mom, one pass for dad, one pass for all, you know, everybody in the house. Right. So um, with this, it's one pass for one house. So that means everybody gets to watch together. So it's Amazing. a big family saving. And if we want to get tickets and find out the lineup, it, we go where? To Toronto Black Film Festival? I mean, on the website, we can do everything. We can watch the lineup. We can read about them. We can see the trailers. We can, you know, understand what's going on. And then we can make our selections. We can definitely buy the All Access Pass, $69 for 154 films. This is unheard of. It's less than 50 cents a film. So take advantage of that, guys. And uh, also, the panel discussions are free. So people can definitely see the lineup online as well. And we also have a live performances and everything else that are free as well. Well, the ninth annual starts tomorrow. And I want to say, as they do in show business, break a leg. (laughs) Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. If you like what you heard, don't forget, we broadcast live three hours between nine and noon, Monday through Friday on Global News Radio, 640Toronto.com.